Welcome to the Author Blur Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Maynard. Today, I'm very excited. I get to speak with Archie Roy. His conversation that him and I had entertained me immensely. But of course, that's because I'm into understanding as much as I can about King Solomon, the myth, the truth, the things that happened in his life. I found him to be an intriguing figure in history. That is my personal view. And that's also part of the reason I really got into talking with Archie about his books. He has books on dreams from a Christian point of view, which sounds interesting as well. And he has another book that talks about people that have albinism, and I might be mispronouncing that again, but basically talks about the struggles in the lives of people that are albino trying to get real life understanding of their point of view and what they deal with, with having that affliction on them. Now, he makes it sound very interesting, and I hope you enjoy listening to him about everything as much as I did. I promise you, if you're into King Solomon, into dreams, trying to understand them, especially if you want to understand from a Christian point of view, you want to look into Archie Moore. I promise you, he won't let you down. He was a fun guest to have on. And for better or worse, you're not going to go wrong listening to this because, well, I found it fun and I hope you do too. With that being said, I'm going to get on to the nuts and bolts of the show. The little tidbits before the actual conversation, which is I want to tell you that I am working on setting up reviews where I will be reviewing people's books specifically authors who have been on the show. Now, I'll be doing a handful of the books reviews by myself. I have been working with the host of Living the Next Chapter. He is a fantastic person to listen to. I've enjoyed talking with him, and I hope you check him out. Maybe you'll find an author there as well. But if you don't like his book or his podcast, I should say, on authors, the guy runs six, seven podcasts at a time. I imagine he might have something you might be interested in. So go check him out. He's a good guy, like I said. But I'm working on trying to get something set up with him. Also, I'll be bringing in people that I know that are into certain genres that I think will give a perspective of a book that can increase the value of the review. So I'll give my review, they'll give their review, we'll have a chat about it, and that's that. So, because, well, I'm not a fan of every genre, but I like reading and I like to get to know things and hear in other people's perspectives. Hopefully you do too. Now the next thing is, to help me out, tell people about the show. We're growing, we're doing fantastic, thanks to what you, my listeners, the readers, all you are trying to do to improve the show. And that is telling me what you think, telling me what I can do better, reviewing and sharing the show. Those things are very valuable for me, and I do appreciate it. I've also added an option to the website, if you go there, authorblurb.com, called SpeakPipe, 
where you can leave me a 90-second voicemail, message, whatever you want to call it, where I can listen to what you have to say. And if you want to ask me a question, I'll put it on the show. I'll answer it the best I can. If you want one of the authors to ask answer a question, I'll send it to them, ask them to record something for me, and I'll do a edit audio, whatever you want to call it. You know, I'll admit I'm not always the best. I do garble words or garble words. Yeah, there you go. But I try to keep this as honest and straightforward as I can. So I will let the authors try to answer it if they want and get back to you and have that on the show. So you might hear what people want to hear about your question. And it's always nice to hear your voice that's going out to numerous people and be forever recorded for everybody to hear. Other than that, yeah, I appreciate your time. I'm glad you're here with me on this. And I hope you find that author you just love to read their books. Other than that, enjoy the show. Thank you. So I'm here with Archie Roy. We're here to discuss his newest book, the one that just came out in 2022. Now, mind you, if you're listening to this, I know it's 2023, but you'll be fine. Trust me. This is, a, at least for me, an interesting topic with it being Solomon, King Solomon, which I just love King Solomon's story. I have a ton of questions about King Solomon, to be honest with you. And then you have two other books. Archie, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you coming on. If you can, can you do me a favor? I like to have the authors introduce themselves and do a quick introduction of their books. That way, the readers, the listeners, everybody here can get to know you, and then we can discuss about your books. That sounds great, Eric, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Um, I, as uh, you say, I'm Archie Roy. I live and work in Scotland. And um, I've done a lot of writing over the years, but uh, three main books, all of them non-fiction. And the first one was called Real Lives. And uh, that was followed up with The God of Dreams, Understanding the Meaning and Significance of Dreaming. And the most recent book, as you say, is about King Solomon and um, King Solomon's empire. Um, so all three non-fiction. All right. So now... Real quick, the first one, real lives, that's about people that are that are albino, correct? The I forget the term that you used on it. The Albanian or not Albanian, criminy. The um Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think the nomenclature these days is people with albinism. So albinism. That, yeah, yes. Albinism, yeah, which is basically um loss of pigment. So mm -hmm. uh, people with albinism are much more prone to uh, adverse effects from direct sunlight. Um, they can get sunburned very easily. Um, people from uh, all countries, all parts of the world can, uh, can have this condition. It's more prevalent in some populations than others, though. Um, and... Um, people also, because of the lack of pigment, they have a visual impairment as well. So they are um, what we would say here uh, as, as partially sighted. So they have some useful vision. Mm -hmm. uh, they often use that to <clears throat> the maximum, but they do need some assistance with um, sight. 
So I did a book, um, I co-wrote it with a guy who has the condition, who has albinism, and uh, we were colleagues at work at the time, and we had both co-delivered um, a training session um, for, I think it was lecturers from different colleges and universities, and we were in the pub after the work was over and uh, having a drink, and uh, we just came up with this idea to do a an unusual book about people with albinism because we realised that there just wasn't anything out there that was beyond the medical model of disability, so stuff that was really quite old hat and overly medical. So we teamed up with a fashion photographer from New York called Rick Godotti and he had just started a project called Positive Exposure and he was photographing people with albinism all over the place. He did a lot of international travel to do this and um, we got him over and um, we interviewed some people with albinism and I had a script that I ran through with them about how they'd got on at school, at university, how they got on with work situations and Rick did the photography. So when we brought Real Lives out in 2005, it's a very sort of easily accessible book. It's like a coffee table book. There's a lot of full colour photography in it. Um, people talking about albinism, but represented through naturalistic photography. Um, so I was exploring psychological areas as well as the physical side of things. So I was looking at self-esteem um, coping strategies, um, appearing different and um, how people overcame other people's barriers to that. Um, so it was a, a wonderful project, we really enjoyed doing it and um, the launch was in Edinburgh in 2005 and um, we had to get the book out in time for that conference because the book was the theme of the conference. So if we didn't have the, the physical book there, uh, I don't know what we'd all have talked about for three days um, <laughs> on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. So yeah, that was real lives. All right. So what, I mean, what did you actually, because I've known people, or I should say, I know somebody that has albinism and what, what did you discover, I guess, in your process of doing it? Because you went from knowing somebody that had it uh -huh. to really diving deep into it. Was there yeah. something that you learned differently than what you expected from that, that you discuss in the book or that gets brought out? Or was it just kind of highlighting people's lives? Well, it was... Um a series of case studies, I suppose, and we wanted to have a real diversity of people. So we had a wide age range. And mm -hmm. um, the, the, the eldest person that we interviewed must have been in his mid to late 60s, possibly approaching 70. Um, and uh, it, it was very interesting talking to people through that timeline. So people in their late teens, Mm -hmm. right through to beyond working age and approaching 70. Um, and uh, we, we found that one or two of the older subjects of the study said that, in fact, they, they had, through the course of their lives, they had appeared less and less different. So obviously with lack of pigment, your hair is white. 
uh, you have a pale complexion. As right. the population gets older, <laughs> they, they tend to lose the hair or the hair goes white and so on. So one or two of the older subjects were saying that they felt they'd more or less blended in by now. <laughs> they, they weren't really perceived as being that different anymore. Um, so that was interesting. Um, but also uh, th there were difficult stories that people felt free to relate to us, um, experiences of um, being bullied at school or even later on post-school at college or occasionally in the workplace. Um, and that was interesting. It was interesting to find out about people's coping strategies and uh, the resilience that they developed over time um, to put others in their place, um, to avoid people whenever they could, um, but to be more in your face if that, if that was the right thing to do and uh, they, they were comfortable enough with doing that. Um, so, yeah, that was interesting as well. All right. And then real dreams. Or is it real dreams? I'm trying to remember. <laughs> the God of dreams. The God of dreams. Yes. Yeah. How? So I read some in my early 20s. I read books about dream interpretations, things like that. So is that kind of the route that you went with that, or where does that go? Right. So this was a totally different book, and um, I was at a conference in North Carolina, in uh, a little place called Black Mountain, just east of um, uh, Asheville. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> it was just something that somebody dropped into a conversation. It, it was one of the speakers at the conference, and he said, um, from a Christian point of view, there's just not that much on dreams. And I thought, you know, that's right. I mean, I've read, like you, I'd read a number of books about dream interpretation, and I'd studied psychology for um, almost 10 years um, earlier on, and I had a passing interest in Carl Jung, for instance, and I knew that uh, kind of a groundbreaking book in the West about dreams was Sigmund Freud's book, right, um, which came out prior to World War One, I, I think. Mm -hmm. um, he kind of kick-started Western interest in dreams and the analysis of dreams. But yeah, there just wasn't there was hardly anything from a Christian point of view. So I was coming at it from that perspective and I decided I would just take the time to try and do it systematically. So I looked at every dream that's recounted in the Bible. Okay. So right through the Old Testament into the New Testament. So um, the first dream I looked at was um, a dream by a ruler of the Philistines called Abimelech. And he had a, a kind of warning dream about something that was going on. And the last dream in the Bible is uh, another warning dream, actually. It's, it's the dream that Pilate's wife gets about Christ just shortly before the crucifixion. All right. Um, so I decided just to look at it systematically right through Scripture, and I alternated those chapters with uh, more psychological chapters. So what are different kinds of dreams? What do dream images mean? How can you start to try and interpret dreams that you have? Um, all sorts of things about symbolism. Uh, are, are some dreams just meaningless? Is it the, the, the dodgy pizza you ate last night that's just <laughs> kind of disturbed your night and your dreams along with that? Um, so yeah, it, it was a kind of alternating spiritual and secular chapter approach that that uh, that created the structure of the book 
All right. Sounds good. And then now, like I said, I'm a huge, I have a huge interest into King Solomon. In fact, for this conversation, I've listened to a few audiobooks while I'm working to try to get refreshed on different things about King Solomon, just to make sure I wasn't way off base here. What made you decide to write about King Solomon first? Because I find him as an a interesting fact, uh, interesting figure through history. Yeah, and he did play an important role in history. But the one thing that I always found interesting about him is there's the stuff about him in the Bible, mm-hmm. and then like for the longest time. I remember the story about him commanding demons. Yeah. But that's not in the Bible. That, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, it's, and I remember after I really got into it, I found that out. What was it that got you to say, okay, let me investigate and write the real story about King Solomon? Right. That's a great question, Eric. And, um, I suppose one cause of it all was actually the God of Dreams book, because just one of the dreams in the Bible is a dream that, um, actually two two dreams in the Bible uh, are uh, Solomon's dreams, where he has encounters with God in the dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I looked at one of those mainly for, for one of the chapters in the God of Dreams, and it was the the second of his two dreams, where God basically warns him that um, basically if he keeps going along the the pathway he is choosing for himself, then things will not go well. And uh, he chooses to ignore that dream, actually, in in terms of how he rules for the rest of his lifespan. Um, So that was kind of the the starting point, I suppose. But um, after the dreams book came out, I revisited Solomon and I was astonished to find that compared to other characters in the Old Testament, there was really hardly anything about him. So there is the, the author that you were referring to there about commanding demons and uh, Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, yes. uh, is, the, is the origin of that, that, that account. Um, but compared to King David, for example, Um, who was Solomon's father, there was really not very much on Solomon. And the two main 20th century biographies uh, about Solomon by Frederick Thieberger and Henri Gobert, so one German and one Frenchman, um, I found were out of date. Both of them were out of print and uh, very difficult to get hold of, although I did manage to, to track down copies. But both out of print, um, and I found that people had just skirted around Solomon, that they had chosen for various reasons to um, not ignore him, because it's not really someone you can ignore, but avoid him once right. you thought about him. And I thought that was very interesting. So I was in the situation where Solomon kind of presented himself as an ideal research subject, because there was some some stuff about him, mainly in scripture, but relatively speaking, not that much. And that was a question in itself. Why had people avoided him for so long? Um, so fortunately, I worked at a university 
um, throughout the time I was researching Solomon. And um, through a university library, you do have instant access to journals and all sorts of other more obscure reference points. So you can really research something across the board. Right. If you don't have access to that kind of IT network, it's a lot more difficult. So those were really the, the starting points and the catalyst. He was just a, a fascinating and mysterious subject. And I wanted to see if I could track him down. All right. Now, before I start really diving into some of the questions and the lores and myths and what's real and what's not, what what does your book focus on? Because if I'm looking at it right, it's King Solomon's Empire, the rise, fall, and modern-day influence of an Iron Age. So is the full title of it. So you, the title alone tells me you're looking at his rule as a kingdom and how he influenced modern day or modern iron age, which then influenced the rest of the world. What, what got you to go to that route or what was the whole premise behind the rise, the fall, not just the quick band yeah. and his influence? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Again, that, that's a really good question, Eric, because the, the book evolved over time and I didn't intend to write the entire book. <laughs> I, I just intended to do a new biography of King Solomon. That's all I was intending to do. <laughs> and then suddenly it just doubled in size and in scope. So um, I did the biography. Uh, all right. So I looked at all the events, the recorded events of his life and tried to look at uh, Solomon as a personality, looked at his family of origin, who his siblings were. Uh, obviously, he grew up in a very elite family, mm -hmm. uh, the, the ruling class uh, of uh, Iron Age Israel. But that would just have been a biography, you know, from start of life to end of life. But um, that got split in two in the book. So, so the biography is part one and part three of a four-part book. And oh. then part two is my co-author coming in. So my wife decided to research the books in scripture that are ascribed to Solomon. So Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs. So right at the apex of Solomon's rule, uh, at the end of um, stage one of the biography, uh, my wife Margaret puts in this chunk about just it's not a Bible study as such. It's it's more a treatment of the the writings ascribed to Solomon. So she goes into it in a lot of detail, but it's not every verse or anything. It's it's just themes, um, types of symbolism that Solomon uses, um, and what that could possibly mean. So so does that. And then part four of the book is the modern era, starting from about 1850 through to now, um, and then going into the, the future from now. So, um, so the book suddenly goes from about 970 BC, or sorry, 930 BC, at the end of Solomon's reign, right through to um, uh, antebellum America, 
um, polygamous cults, um, right through to World War II, the Holocaust, um, the Jews recovering their sense of identity in terms of a nation state, um, how they were inspired by Solomon, and uh, the truth about Solomon and myths about Solomon, his flying carpet, etc. <laughs> right. Um, some of the some of the myths that the help keep the Jews going through times of great adversity. You know, they remembered this amazing, wealthy, all powerful, almost all knowing king from their past. Um, I think as an inspiration. You know, something mm-hmm. they could draw strength and energy from. And then the the recent history of Israel and how Israel was kind of inspired by Solomon to forge alliances, um, especially with France, um, to acquire nuclear weapons, um, how modern-day Israel is currently inspired to forge alliances with Arab nation-states surrounding them who historically have been enemies. That's very Solomon-esque to forge alliances with people who think in a very different way to you for national security reasons. And then I was looking at themes like Solomon's temple, um, how that is gone, but um, New Testament scripture prophesies that um, a new temple has to be built on the footprint of King Solomon's temple for certain things to come to pass in the future. So the the book goes through a massive shift in time from the end of Solomon's reign, uh, followed by the collapse of the kingdom, Mm -hmm. and two Jewish kingdoms then at loggerheads with each other, so Israel and Judah, Judah lasting longer than Israel, but then eventually the the diaspora of the Jews across the face of the earth, um, the, the, the wandering Jews being inspired by Solomon, but then coming back together amazingly in 1948 after the end of World War II um, and uh, in uh, a miraculous period of time building up the most powerful states in that part of the world. All right. So with that, you said that, so starting off with his a bit about him and his reign, I know he was King David's son, mm-hmm. if I'm thinking correctly, and he was not the eldest son, which meant that he would not have been rightfully king, except for King David, um, I forget the term, but chose him as his successor. And there was a whole issue of that. And I mean, it it's an interesting real life story of him and itself. But what did you find you said that between his real life and myths, what did you find that you thought were possibly real things that became myths that you realized were myths? Like I said, for me, I discovered the demon thing. Mm-hmm. Being, I don't know. I'm. Let me rephrase that. I'm not going to call it a myth, but I found out that it's actually not part of the Bible, so I'm not holding it as true facts in that sense. What did you discover, if I may, that went from being something you thought was real that in your research about him became part of that myth section? Right. So um, you're quite right. He wasn't the eldest son by any means. 
So he was not, I think he was 10th in line to the throne. Right. (laughs) When he was born. Um, And he had um, many older half brothers Mm -hmm. um, who had a prior claim, but somehow Solomon became king. And there was a conflict there, and he nearly didn't. But um, he was given, shortly after his birth, um, one of the prophets gave him. Uh, what's called a theophoric name, um, uh, which was Yadidya. So he was known for a period of time as Solomon Yadidya. And um, that was quite a common practice in that part of the world, that someone who um, prophets realized should be king or would be king, regardless of where he was in the the birth order, was given an extra name. but Solomon, growing up in the palace, would have kept quiet about that, I'm sure. Otherwise, he would just have been assassinated by someone <laughs> who was bolder, older and stronger than him. Right. Uh, so, But that's an interesting story in itself, how exactly he became king of Israel. But um, you mentioned, you know, truth versus myth. And I really focused on Josephus. Um, and there's a chapter in the book later on. Um, I think it's in part three of King Solomon's empire, which is called Solomon and the Jinn. Um, so D-J-I-N-N. And these were sort of Middle Eastern demons that uh, would allegedly do Solomon's bidding. Um, and um, uh, Josephus, of course, was living hundreds of years after Solomon died. So Josephus was a Roman citizen um, and a Jew. And I discovered that he was recounting to Caesar um, and Caesar's palace all sorts of um, fantastical stories about Solomon um, controlling demons to do this and that and fetch things and carry things and so on um, for political reasons. So this was shortly before um, the Romans finally ransacked Jerusalem um, it was shortly before the, the last stages of the Roman Jewish wars that were intermittent through that time. Um, and Josephus was trying to present Solomon as a worthy addition to Roman pagan religion and myth. So he was kind of putting Solomon forward as um, a, a fantastical, uh, magic working but dead king, but whose magic lived on and could be tapped into by Jewish magicians, etc. Um, one of whom I think was performing various signs in Caesar's palace. <laughs> um, but it was for political reasons. Um, and eventually these myths just didn't change the, the sequence of events and the Romans did completely overrun Israel and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple uh, as it was at that time. All right. Now, if I remember the history right, I know that King Solomon, one of the most famous pieces of vices he gave was about the child and the two mothers who one mother, her baby died in the night, switched out the child with another baby and in fact, if I remember correctly, it was two prostitutes that were the the um, disputing parties about this, where 
So most times you would think, okay, a king is not going to give prostitutes the time of day, but he took them in, listened to them, and then famously did the the decision that I think I've heard since I was a little kid about the king who said, let's cut the baby in half and give each mother one. And the mother who, the one mother who stood up and said, no, don't kill my baby. Give it to her. I'd rather her have it and the baby live versus you killing the child. And that, and that story demonstrated the wisdom of King Solomon, which if I remember, he was also revered as being wiser than the wealth that he possessed. Yes, yes. It's um, it's an amazing story, and it's kind of there to exemplify the, the, the incisiveness of Solomon's wisdom. Um, I think it would have been astonishing. Anytime Solomon used that wisdom, it would have astonished everybody who was there at the time. Um, and that case would have been referred to Solomon because the lower magistrates who would usually deal with um, uh, court cases like that um, involving just, just ordinary people, they found it impossible. So it was kind of referred up the chain of command, if you like, and eventually ended up with Solomon. Um, and uh, yeah, he was able to just ask uh, one two questions and um, uh, tap into the the rightful mother's mothering instinct, protective instinct for her baby uh, through the use of a, a, a sword and uh, just the, the the order cut the baby in half. Let's be done with this. Just you know, each woman can get a half and let's all go away. Um, and uh, that that just amazed everybody because it would have, uh, as well as cutting to the absolute heart of the matter, um, it would all have happened very fast. So this mm-hmm. would have just taken a few seconds. In this case that had defeated all the lower down magistrates, Solomon just solved it with uh, the sudden use of wisdom um, and uh, the case was closed. And I think this would have been quite illustrative of a lot of scenarios that that people would have come across when Solomon was in wisdom mode. It would have been very unexpected. Nobody would know what on earth would happen, but the problem was just solved like that. (laughs) Okay, now, how about this? You said that, because there's a lot of myths about Solomon, and I mean, I couldn't count all the ones that I know that are myth. And who knows how many I think are real that are myths. But with everything said and done, you said there are some myths that were used to help the Jewish, the Jews and the Jewish community to get through hard times and rebuild and come back. What were some of those myths that helped the Jewish people survive? Well, they were myths that... um I think the most powerful myths are those that have some grain of truth. And then there's a, a spectacular myth built round about him. So one myth was that um, he lived for a very long time. He became a great elderly sage. Um, he lived longer than most or all other rulers of that time when the Jews were living in the, the Middle East at the start of the Iron Age. 
that's a myth because when you do the research, you find that actually Solomon didn't live to be an old man. Um, and sometimes Ecclesiastes, which, which is a kind of pessimistic book in Scripture, um, it, it, some writers who maybe ought to know better, they, they kind of attribute that to Solomon when he was very elderly and sage-like and uh, maybe 90 years old or, or older. But in fact, Solomon died aged 59 or 60. He was 20 when he came to the throne. He reigned for 40 years and he passed away at 59 or 60. So, so they, they sort of added another 50% onto his <laughs> lifespan, some people. And then there's kind of the very uh, creative, colorful uh, myths around Solomon having an enormous flying carpet um, that shielded all the animals underneath and uh, birds were able to flock above it um, as a canopy of birds had to shield him on his flying carpet from the blazing sun at noonday. <laughs> So all that would be just, just interesting stuff to talk about, <laughs> right? Um, but uh, obviously not true. Well, I know there was a myth, if I'm not mistaken, about Solomon's mind, which is probably one of the most famous ones I'm aware of. And then one is I've heard different tellings and different things about Queen of Sheba or Queen yeah. Sheba, which if I'm not mistaken, she was real and did have a relationship with King Solomon, but she didn't stay with him. She went back to her homeland in effort to rule her country because she knew, if I'm not mistaken, some about King Solomon just couldn't be with her the way that she wanted. Uh -huh. So. Yeah, Go ahead. yeah, well, yeah, the Queen of Sheba is uh, a fascinating character and um, you get the sense when you read about the exchanges between the Queen of Sheba and Solomon that he'd met his match at last in the Queen of Sheba, um, who was able to um, tease him and test him with all sorts of uh, very difficult questions. But the interesting thing is, um, Eric, when you look at the the accounts in scripture, um, you see word for word in a number of places what the Queen of Sheba said to Solomon. All right. and you, you kind of assume that you'll, you'll then read what he said to her, but you never do. It's not there. Um, and earlier, um, there are what you think are, are dialogues, exchanges between David uh, when he's an old man and Solomon before Solomon becomes king and you see what David says to Solomon word for word but you don't see anything about what Solomon said back to David or if he even said anything at all but we know from the exchanges with Sheba that Solomon more than satisfied all her difficult questions and right. she was very impressed with his wealth and the temple and the the feasting, the, the lavish banquets and everything else, the, the lifestyle in general in, in Jerusalem, um, if, if you are part of Solomon's elite. Um, but you don't see what Solomon said. And that's very interesting. Um, there's almost no direct speech from Solomon in Scripture in the Old Testament. Although you do have these books that, that my wife Margaret um gives a treatment to, which are 
um, reputedly written by Solomon. So you have that, but you don't have anything else to kind of balance, counterbalance it with. Um, and yes, you do have the uh, the mythology that um, that they had a relationship, and uh, Sheba went back to her country um, to take up the reins of power there. And it's all very interesting. Um, and uh, the Ethiopian and the Eritrean churches make a great deal of the relationship between uh, King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have additional books in their versions of scripture, um, which focus in on that side of things. All right. Now, you said that there was books written by King Solomon himself. Mm-hmm. Now, that I didn't know. So is that where a lot of people are getting the extra information that's not in the Bible that they're making of or using for their research with King Solomon? What were those books really about? Were they just his thoughts? Were they political accounts? Were they what? They vary a lot. Um, There's a huge variety in the books that are attributed to Solomon. So uh, all the ones that are definitely attributable to Solomon are in the Old Testament, but they're not the books that describe his reign. So the the books that describe his reign are Kings and Chronicles. Now Solomon didn't write these. So so there are entirely different books there that are attributed to Solomon, um, but sometimes don't mention him directly. So uh, you have um, the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, which is um, essentially about a love relationship between a young ruler and uh, a young woman called the Shulamite. And um, this is a very complex piece of work. It's, it, it can be very confusing. Um, I only, to be honest, really got into it when I was doing the research for King Solomon's Empire. It just, to be honest, prior to that, it just left me cold. And it was, I found it almost impossible to work out who was saying what and what the sequence of events were. And in fact, there is no set sequence of events and it is very difficult to work out who's saying what. But when you get into it, it's an amazing piece of work and um, very moving. It's not like anything else in literature, either modern day or historic literature. It's just completely unique. And um, we're led to believe that Solomon wrote at least a thousand of these pieces of work, but most of them have been lost to us so far anyway, unfortunately. And then Proverbs is attributable to Solomon. And that is an interesting book of wisdom where he seems to have drawn some of it from the ancient Egyptians and Mm -hmm. then kind of repackaged it, kind of reformulated it a bit uh, just to give it a bit more impetus. But if you compare it to some ancient Egyptian texts, there, there are close similarities. But Solomon borrowed a lot from Egypt, and he was doing that on a regular basis. Um, and then Ecclesiastes, as I said, is, is the other book, and that is a, a little bit more um, pessimistic, but there is still a lot of wisdom in that. All right. Now, here's one thing is in the title, it talks the rise, the fall, and the influence of modern Iron Age. One thing people 
especially until I started looking into it myself, people don't think about the fall of Solomon. Now, when I looked, when I got into looking into him, there was people would say the fact of he was focused about having so many horses for his army where King David said that, and I think I forget who else mentioned it about that. There should not be an army. The kingdom of God does not need an army because they have God on their side. And if I'm misquoting or miss saying something, forgive me, but, and then the fact of he also where God is contributing life to where you are supposed to get to a point where you have enough to sustain yourself and your life and your charity for God, everything else should be given away where Solomon kept collecting animals, gold, women, just everything at that time that symbolized power. Yeah. Do you think that that had a part to do with the fall or what are you contributing to the fall of Solomon? Right. That's a great question. <laughs> um, it, it, part three of the book is about the fall of Solomon, really. Um, so it's, it's part two of the biography. And um, I look at the uh, the inordinate number of women that Solomon had. So he had uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines. So that's 1,000 women. Right. He, he had untold wealth. Uh, he was probably the wealthiest ruler who's ever lived. Mm -hmm. um, parts of the temple were gold entirely. Mm -hmm. uh, just the value of the gold would be astronomic, let alone everything else. And yes, he went against um, guidance um, to Israel earlier on about not having a chariot force, not multiplying horses, um, and uh, not having a vast number of wives, especially from um, pagan nations. But he kind of went directly against all that. And right. he assembled all that together. Um, and at the end of the day, you have to say why, you know, why, what was it about Solomon that meant that for Solomon, any amount of something was never enough. There always had to be more until it just got so, um, uh, so implosive just shortly after Solomon died that the whole thing just blew apart. Um, and uh, I put it down to his psychological state and um, something that uh, I suppose could be termed narcissism. Um, and narcissists often never have enough of something and um, they, they have to have a constant supply and they lose interest in what they have, but they must have more of that. Um, and uh, a friend of mine could say that Jewel brought out a, a book called um, uh, Solomon's Concubine um, last mm -hmm. year, and um, that book really portrays some some of these aspects very well. Um, she goes into Solomon um, choosing concubines purely according to their beauty. Mm -hmm. um, now that is just one attribute. Right. <laughs> Who knows what these people would be like? 
coming into Solomon's palace, Solomon probably tired of them very quickly because some might have been illiterate, they might not have been bright, they might have been very difficult to deal with, Mm -hmm. but he would always want more. And this is a kind of narcissism thing going on. And the root causes of that would, I, I suppose, be his family of origin. Some of it might be genetic. He grew up in a family where... He was surrounded by half-brothers, half-sisters. There would be a lot of sibling rivalry. A lot was at stake. Um, They were violent times. Um, There were coup d'etats going on from time to time. Um, So it would be a very fractious, difficult, but very elitist family. And I think the dynamics for what then went on in Solomon's life were kind of sown early on. Um, So it was interesting to look at that. Uh, And uh, this is a whole area of inquiry these days, I suppose it's called the psychology of history, you know, looking back at people who have ruled in the past and trying to work out what was going on with them internally to cause them to take the actions that they did. All right. Now, when you put everything together and you decided to actually publish the book, Mm -hmm. by the time you finished, did you have expectations or a hope that, you know, I really hope that people reading this would get this out of it, or this is what I'm trying to achieve with doing this? Is it like I talked to a gentleman who wrote a book about Haiti and mm-hmm. the history of Haiti? Now, he wrote it as a form of textbook, kind of a educational factor. I've talked to people on the show and off the show who's written to just entertain for fiction and nonfiction alike. It's focused to entertain people to bring them in for the nonfiction. It's to entertain them to get them to learn. What was your direction of writing this or what did you have a goal when you kept expanding your bio to become a book? Um, I see it as uh, a non-fiction mystery, really, as a sort of adventure for people to go on. And um, I, I try to make the biography something that at times is experiential. So um, with the archaeology that's been done now on palace, uh, palace constructions and temples um, in the, the Middle East, it is possible to kind of go on a journey through King Solomon's temple as it would have looked um, after he'd completed it. And it's possible to actually then go down through his palace complex and take a look at the buildings. So part of the biography takes readers on that kind of journey. So it's it's a kind of uh, journey of mystery and exploration, but also fact finding. Um, And so that's important, but also uh, equally important is um, trying to find out what Solomon's significance is today um, and the recent past and the near future, because he certainly inspired the Jewish people as well as other people to do amazing things. So um, just as Solomon built up Israel's uh, military to be the most powerful military in the Middle East, Israel now has emulated that. So Israel is the only um, nuclear power in the Middle East. 
Um, and they have been inspired by Solomon to do that, I believe. They've also been inspired to uh, forge all sorts of peace treaties so that more or less they live at peace in the Middle East, just as Solomon's empire did. All right. So let me do this. You know, honestly, I've said this before to authors that I could probably talk all day about their books and such. I guarantee I could probably talk to you for a couple of days about King Solomon and get. So sadly enough, I feel like for me to get the full thing, I'm going to have to buy your book and actually read through it, uh, get a full feel of everything. So say somebody wants to reach out to you. I have your information on authorblurb.com. People yeah. can find you. They can get your links that I have there for you. Where do you prefer people other than the show notes here, the profile I have on you or have for you at authorblurb.com? Where do you prefer people to reach out to you if they want to contact you, learn more about you, anything like that? Well, um, LinkedIn would be one possibility. I'm quite active on LinkedIn. Um, and the other main one, the, the other very direct one, would be by email. So archie.roy at btinternet.com. Happy for people to get in touch direct. Um, these would be the two main ones. All right, perfect. So, and that's all available on your profile and again on the show notes. So I appreciate you very much for being here. I've enjoyed our conversation. So what I'm going to do is this is the end of the conversation for everybody else. But if you can hold on for me for a minute, I'd be quite appreciative. That's absolutely fine. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. I'm glad you made it this far to the end of the show. I hope you've enjoyed it because that's what it's all about. I'd also like to suggest that you take the time and go find the other authors that are here. Find that author that you're going to love and you're going to want to share. It's all about the authors and that's why I'm here. Now, if you enjoy the show, I'd like to ask you to do me a favor. If you think it's worth it, go to the website, authorblurb.com. You can donate money, donate crypto, buy me a cup of coffee, things like that that helps me support keeping the show going right now i don't do anything to try to delay add distract you everything's out of my pocket and everything is meant to make authors be able to grow their audience and grow your attention so as always thank you for being here i hope you come back for the next show and again take the time explore authorblurb.com there's a lot there that you will be very happy to take the time to enjoy. And as final note, rate, review, shoot me an email through authorblurb.com. That way you can at least let me know what you think. I'm happy to always see reviews and hear what you think. Thank you. Have a good day.